Listen, it's time now to hear the quiet revolution. Welcome back. You are listening to The Quiet Revolution, a podcast series exploring the integration of traditional ecological knowledge with Western science. I am your host, Florence Dunkel. Today we are enjoying a campfire in the cool fall evening in East Marlboro, Maryland. We're with Dr. Hiram LaRue. H-I-R-A-M-L-A-R-E-W. An entomologist. It's interesting to realize, while I was spending the past 58 years of my life in training or doing research or teaching or administrating at several land-grant universities, Hiram was meanwhile spending his 58 years as a career entomologist in the governing body, the grant distributing body of the land grant universities, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In all cases and all positions that I held, the common thread theme was international global food security. But through that work, I also became very interested in hunger in the U.S. as well. I think generally, I began to realize over my career that we could develop all the technologies, know-how, savviness, uh, cool approaches, gee whiz, um, whiz bang sort of techniques. But if we didn't have people actively involved from the word get-go with their enthusiastic buy-in, certainly their understanding of what we were proposing to use or do, and their buy-in to it, um, and even being informed, our activities being informed by uh, people, particularly stakeholders, but the public at large, then all of our efforts, scientific efforts and otherwise, to develop approaches and responses to constraints and challenges were for naught. And so I began to see the importance of the people dimension of the work that we were all about and doing. Um, and then Florence particularly, I think, opened my eyes probably, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago now, uh, to the notion that uh, culture definitely influences uh, the ability and the, the wisdom of uh, people working in agriculture and has done for centuries, that's the key point. She's continued to point out that the historical richness of know-how that's been developed over literally centuries and has been largely ignored by many at the research bench at most traditional scientific uh, labs, that that rich tradition and wisdom needs to be brought forward and either meshed within or help to inform or be used to inform uh, Western approaches. Uh, and I think we've encountered over the years some difficulties, the, per the perils, I'll put it that way, the perils of not paying attention to ecological knowledge, particularly 
environmental problems that we encounter because we don't respect the environment like we should and like traditional knowledge would have us respected. And then just kind of the, the insights to the way people respond, behave, um, that's found within traditional knowledge, I think can be very useful to the cause. So that's a very long way of saying that I first perceived that people were important, part, a very critical, crucial part of anything we did in the agricultural sciences and then expanding on that or maybe drilling down into it. Florence helped me begin to appreciate the whole role of culture, tradition, wisdom, as it applies to agriculture. For the past 10 years, Hiram has been opening eyes and minds of students here at Montana State University. He's been helping us understand how the U.S. legislation, the Farm Bill, one of the oldest and biggest pieces of our legislation, causes a massive and continuous listening process. When a new Farm Bill is passed, and funds are allocated to carry out what was in the Farm Bill, there's another long listening and discussion process. It's times that, like this, that our ideas change. Whether or not you like it or not, the Farm Bill is a pretty important piece of legislation in that it governs pretty much everything that the U.S. government does in agriculture. And as a result, because the government funds a lot of non-governmental organizations, the Farm Bill governs a lot of what's being done in agriculture, government sponsored or not, in the U.S. and really even around the world. I'd have to be honest and say that the Farm Bill has been written over the many years that it's existed with Western approaches, Western science, Western logic as its base. And I think that there is a turning point that we're beginning to encounter, and I think the class is a, a good example of that, um, but I think there are other signals that things are beginning to kind of change and people are asking key questions about the role of Western science and uh, both progress and missteps um, that it's caused. To open up the dialogue a bit more around the Farm Bill and other policy conversations that would, in, that would try to find ways for bringing traditional knowledge centrally into the programs of the Farm Bill and, and going back upstream just a tad bit from the policies, discussions that shape those policies in the Farm Bill. So what do I mean? Having folks who are very uh, knowledgeable about traditional ecological knowledge involved in early planning discussions of what a new Farm Bill what the next farm bill will include, I think, is, is going to be key and, and critically important. The farm bill is based upon input from the public. I'd be naive to say that, it's, that some public have more sway than others, and at least have had in times past, in shaping the farm bill. But as I say, increasingly, I think there's a turning point here, that, a tipping point that we're reaching, where voices that perhaps have traditionally not been heard as much in the farm bill can, should, and people are realizing must be heard.
I think the Farm Bill is one key vehicle for inserting creative, innovative approaches to include traditional ecological knowledge to support its development and to find ways to integrate it alongside Western knowledge. I don't see us getting rid of Western knowledge, but I definitely see us having Western knowledge informed by, improved by, strengthened by traditional knowledge. Over the course of my career, I was writing poetry and I was going to work every day and rarely did the two worlds meet. It wasn't that I discouraged the whole notion of talking about poetry on the job, but I just didn't bring it up much. When I retired, I had a little bit more time to think about all this and I also started attending some, a little bit more proactively, some of the work or groups discussions about hunger, especially hunger in the U.S., and realized that, you know, it was, a, it was a growing problem. It's a problem that's been around since people were walking the earth, but it's not getting any better, and certainly with COVID, it's hunger is becoming more of a scourge, not less. And um, I was asked at one point to provide some remarks about uh, poetry and hunger. What a mashup. I mean, you know, I was kind of spun around when given that opportunity because I'd really never put the two in the same sentence. Uh, and so to do the homework to get ready for that discussion, I started looking and I found that there just wasn't a whole lot of poetry. There's some and some very powerful poems out there uh, about hunger. And I don't mean hunger of the heart. I don't mean hunger of the spirit. Those are all very important hungers. But I'm talking about hunger of the stomach. There's just not a whole lot of poetry about it. So make a long story short, I launched a very informal initiative called Poetry X Hunger to encourage poets from around the world to write poems about hunger that could then be posted and made use of freely by anti-hunger organizations in their, well, for whatever cause, uh, for opening meetings or closing meetings or for, in their appeals or in their newsletters and the like. Because here's the point, you can have all the statistics and data and trends uh, that are available and they're all critically important to have them available. Don't get me wrong, the data is important on hunger, absolutely. But I contend that poetry can reach hearts faster, more compellingly, with more grab than data statistics and trend lines can. And so it's not either or, I think we need all of the tools in the toolkit to speak back to hunger. And so Poetry X Hunger I shaped it to enlist the help of poets from around the world and to do that. And fast forward, we now have a website with about 150 poems, uh, both text, audio, video, and the like, as well as, well as a lot of other resources uh, that folks can visit, particularly hunger, anti-hunger organizations can visit and pick and choose from as they so desire. And some hunger organizations are starting to do that. The United Nations has gotten behind this. And they've showcased a lot of poems and provided support for the World Food Day Poetry Competition that we work closely with them to implement. Um, a great big food bank back here, distribution center called the Capital Area Food Bank, has gotten behind it and has for the first time ever offered a poet in residence program for a young poet to visit the food bank and write 
about what's observed, felt, and thought while there. And it's the first time, as far as I know, that any such residency focused on hunger has ever been offered. Um, and, and it goes on and on. We've engaged with folks from around, uh, well, in several countries, um, Europe, of course, and Australia, and Japan, and many countries. We have some wonderful poems by Zimbabwean poets, young Zimbabwean poets. Um, and so um, most all the poems there are in English. We're hoping to get a few more in other languages. So that's where my interest in poetry and food insecurity, hunger, kind of merge. Uh, I'm also, you know, still writing my own poems. Uh, some of them focused on hunger, but many of them not, and still engaged in that work, which is now largely virtual <laughs> with COVID. This is one of the few that I have on the Poetry X Hunger website. Actually, I wrote it right at the beginning, uh, probably in April of this year, when COVID was, we were just beginning to realize its implications and everyone was braced for the worst and really beginning to be concerned about the food supply. Um, and I wrote this piece and it's fairly short. It's called Bread in Hand. But even after all of this, farmers keep farming for every one of us. They bend the sun and raise the earth each day for us. They round each rough and tamp down these ears for each of us. Yes, after all of this, they're the songs of life for us. And even after all of this, the grocers, pickers, bag baggers, stackers, sorters, drivers, checkers, and sweepers too are here for us. Like bowls of life, they give us each our every day and so renew that sense of trust for us. And even after all of this, and just as much, are those who volunteer to serve the soup, the ones who help and give and care on our behalf. Their hands and hearts shape our thanks. No matter what else happens, they are life itself for us. And yes, even after all of this, these days do seem like troubled fields for us, with deep shadows across the views, but with growing hopes there too, surrounding all of those who stand and wave, bread in hand, through all of this. Thank you, Hiram. It's been good to be with you and to go and to sit and to listen around your campfire. You've been listening to The Quiet Revolution, produced by Jackie Coffin. I am your host, Florence Dunkel. See you next time for the last session of this season. We'll be visiting back in Montana with Avery Old Coyote around his campfire in Hardin, Montana, near the Absalga Reservation. Let us hear from you. You can write us at our email, thequietrevolutionpodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook. And thank you for listening. <laughs>